Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Don Howard. She is a professional accountant, and she also works on the campaign for Dan Cannon. He's running for Senate in Indiana, uh, and he has a very progressive platform that is really uh, reaching a lot of common ground between uh, some diverse uh, political ideological perspectives. Opening up the conversation, we touch on rape culture and sexual harassment and sexual assault. Um, This is coming hot off the heels of the Me Too movement. And uh, longtime listeners or followers of of the blog might remember some posts uh, and perhaps even an episode uh, where I talked about the SAFE 13 study. It was a study that revealed a lot of rampant sexual assault and sexual harassment in the field of archaeology. Uh, and here we are four years later, and we're still finding that it is um, just horrifically widespread and rampant. So um, I hope you enjoy that part of the conversation. There's a lot to learn, a lot to act on. Um, but then following that, we talk about healthcare and taxes. These are things that are a step out of the box in many ways for the Go Dig a Hole podcast. But there are things that uh, archaeologists will more than likely find useful. Um, In my own experience over the past decade, I've often found myself uh, seeing more in common with freelancers in the creative industry than I have with um, other scientists um, because we tend to, as archaeologists, we tend to uh, work contract to contract, uh, often as 1099. Um, so that's that's an important thing that uh, Don covers. So hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, Don's got a lot of great advice. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't um, I don't know how to gracefully segue into that, but if you want to just <laughs> drop it as a question, I'm happy to talk about any of that uh, ad nauseum, as I'm sure you know. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Particularly around rape culture, because, you know, as, as someone who – I mean, I don't know if you saw me get not all mend about that thing about the friend zone um, that I posted on Facebook. But like as someone who hangs out a lot with dudes and, um, you know, right now I'm in a fairly dude centric field. Accounting is a pretty dude centric field, like the importance of, you know, especially if you have within work, if you have the privilege and if not in your in, in your personal life, because you shouldn't have friends as you don't have the privilege to, that you can't call out. So like the way that um, dudes in particular need to police themselves because that's not our emotional labor to do, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, that's a big, let's just uh, start there, I guess. So it, in the past week, I think uh, the, the trending post of, of me too came out and it's, it's not just a, a trending post. It's, it's this, absolutely horrifying absolutely heartbreaking indictment of how deep rape culture goes and uh it i mean it's it's one of those things that you you mentally brace yourself and you know even even if you're kind of in that and working in that space it's still it's it's still just like shocking to see every single woman on your facebook timeline um post that yeah, I mean, I I think that, um, you know, dudes who even consider themselves woke um, have been really surprised by this. Um, yeah. I don't think that there's a woman alive who's been surprised by it, other than the fact that I've been 
I've been pleasantly surprised at how emboldened and open people have felt about it, uh, which I think is um, it's a pattern you see. So when we take down these people like Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein or whatever, you know, it happens when people are ready to all hold hands together and jump. That that's that there's strength in numbers and that because you feel protected. And I think that with this on Facebook, you know, even where most people were not naming names, the the, the way that they felt emboldened, the way that women, you know, I talk about everything all the time, but the way that women who usually have some sense of personal space um, felt emboldened to say, no, this happened to me too, and I'm mad about it. And, you know, all these sorts of conversations about, well, I didn't want to say anything because, you know, I wasn't raped. It wasn't, quote, unquote, that bad. And, 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 and starting the conversations about, you know, I don't like the term microaggressions, but when you're talking about things like this, how, how important those are because they contribute to the overall, the overall aspect of it. So I think the community part of it was really powerful. But, no, of course – I'm in no way surprised to know that every single woman has been either sexually harassed, made to feel uncomfortable, groped, touched. You know, someone brought up the example of, you know, if you've been on a dance floor and a guy just sort of rubbed his erection against you, yeah, that's just a thing that happens. And the fact that we learn to just be like, well, I'm a woman, what am I going to do? It's gross. You know, it's really gross. Yeah. It is. And some of the responses to that, you, you had touched on that, how a, a lot of men that, that would normally consider themselves woke were, were horrified by that. And I, I think I would count myself among them. But um, there, were some, there were some important conversations on, you know, from, from the male response to that. Um, you know, so there, were, there were like attempts at, at you know, viral posts or, or like trending posts that I, I think we're chasing chasing trends rather than than making like a meaningful statement. I don't know if that's fair to say, but um, one of the things that you know the the natural call to action of of the Me Too um, you know admission is is that men have to respond to that and they they have to respond by calling out, rape culture, even if it's just like, like you said, microaggressions, you know, how many times have, like I, I had a, a friend of mine on, on my Facebook, um, you know, he, he posted, you know, how many times has he let a joke go by that was off color that was, you know, totally inappropriate or, you know, how many jokes are just mildly inappropriate that you just totally let go. But it's like the sum total of all of these kind of messed up jokes have a huge impact when it, when it's all put together. Um, so. Right. It, it, it completely becomes death of a thousand cuts, and that's <laughs> what rape culture is. Again, to use a buzzword that some people roll their eyes at, but I think is actually a crucial one to use. Um, most men are not rapists. Most men have contributed to rape culture, and I think that that is something. So the response to me, too, is not for a bunch of dudes to be like, I hear you. I support you. I believe you. Man, I, I don't give a shit. I don't. I don't. Can we, cuss, can we swear on here? I'm sorry. I yeah, don't, go sorry. for it. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't give a shit if you hear me or believe me or or support me. You know, I've I've spent that time. I'm not here laying my life bare so you can tell me that you believe me because women believe me and that's fine. What men have to do if they care about this is to take care of their own. You know, I, I, women should not have to be the ones shouting down, 
sexist or grabby guys or, you know, people who are making those kind of jokes or things like that. Number one, because we're already bearing the burden of what it does to us. But number two, the kind of people who do that, they don't listen to us. We don't have that. We don't have the cachet. It's just like how white people have to be the ones to do the work against racism. Men have to be the ones to do the work against this. And, and, and it is small stuff. So I caused a big thing by talking about friend zone, which is a pet peeve of mine. And of course it sounds dumb. Like it seems so innocuous friend zone. But but what does it mean if you say, oh, she put you in the friend zone? What that is saying is the default setting for a woman you meet is that she, is, that she wants to have sex with you. And you get put in the friend zone when that switch gets toggled. Like, that's so backwards. That's completely backwards. Yeah. <laughs> and it's those little things that we that, that that we say and we do without even thinking and that's that's how rape culture is. It comes from a place of the default state of the male is entitled to look at a female purely sexually, is entitled to want her to have sex with him and if she doesn't then she is somehow the one who's upset the natural order of things. Right. And it's a, it's a small thing but boy it adds up to a lot of what we see. Right. And that also by extension of that, that if a man acts that way, that they still get to be treated like a grown ass adult or a, you know, respected professional. And that's that they can continue on with no or even very little repercussion. Right. Yeah. I mean, these guys aren't treated. And I'm not here to say that saying the word friend zone is as bad as being a racist. Like I'm not a lunatic of being a rapist i'm not a lunatic but 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 yes to your point it, you know it's um again to make the racial parallel you know they talk about you know the, the biggest enemy to the negro is the moderate white so this comes along with this same kind of thing too uh, rape culture comes about not because of how many people are actually rapists who are, you know, standing in the bushes or, or purposely roofing drinks or doing all that. It's all the people who think that they're doing just fine and are, are and aren't and aren't. And, and those people are not helpful to us. Yeah. It, there's, there's really no neutral position in that. And, and I think that's the case with, with many things. And, I guess maybe that's a good segue to um, healthcare. You know, maybe yep. it's, maybe it's a long jump, but uh, it is a jump. That <laughs> healthcare is something that um, you know. I was recently a guest on the Curiosity and Focus podcast, and uh, it, you know, the host Daniel Kwan is is based in in Canada, where they don't have this um, thing that that you know Americans have to agonize and and have you know anxiety over, but. So you're 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 campaigning with with Dan Cannon there, and that's one of those issues that that uh, you know I'm sure is coming up in his platform, and and I know that you feel very strongly about that, and, and Dan does too. And there there are so many you know like centrist positions on it that are just like, well, what if what if we just make um, the insurance companies be like a little less greedy? And it's like, well, that that's not going to solve anything. Like we still have yeah. so many people in our country who are uninsured. And, you know, as as, you know, some of the the audience of, of this podcast are archaeologists, you know, like archaeologists don't have health care, period. Maybe they have a stipend in their their salary or their their contract 
for their wages that is supposed to cover that. But, you know, like there are so many loopholes that that just falls through the cracks for a lot of contract workers. And, you know, that's one of those things that I think goes like severely underreported. But, you know, here we are, and you recently um, held kind of kind of like a meet and greet workshop on how to get people insured. And there, there's a lot of, you know, just terrifying things going on to our healthcare. So would would you care to kind of set the the scene for that? Like, um, our our deadline for getting healthcare has been significantly reduced, and then there's been a whole lot of other severe reductions to. The capacity for our our healthcare to you know function adequately, but um, so where where are you standing on that? Like, what do you see as the current situation? Sure. Uh, so uh, the meet and greet is actually in the future because I want to do it after the open enrollment, which starts November first, because I want people to actually sit with their laptops and sign up while I'm sitting beside them. Oh, cool. Um, and I would inc- I would encourage anybody who lives somewhere. Um, that does actually know how to do this. My the response to it's been really great. People need it, and that there are some helplines, but they're overworked, and people are embarrassed to ask, you know, yeah. strangers about stuff like that. But as far as the, the general point, so as you said, um, I'm uh, I'm the finance director for a guy named Dan Cannon, who was running for Congress in the ninth district of Indiana. Uh, I am not a career political operative. He's a long-term friend of mine, and I was not going to get left out of this. Um, And uh, healthcare is the number one issue people want to talk about. And the thing that I find really interesting about it, which I've learned from him because he really has a knack uh, at getting with people on different levels, because the ninth is a very diverse district. It has Bloomington, which is a huge college town. It has the wealthy suburbs of Indianapolis. It has these northern suburbs of uh, Louisville and then about 11 rural counties in between. So it's a really tough place to craft a message. Wow. But, yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's something. Uh, but, what, but what we found from this and, and what he knew instinctively is that you get around this with the people by staying as far away from the buzzwords as possible. You know, almost nobody out there in the rural areas wants to hear the word single payer. Yeah. They think that's horrifying. They think that's, you know, whatever. But you say, but what if everybody could get Medicare? Oh, I mean, <laughs> don't you know, don't you know somebody who went bankrupt because of a medical bill or got really sick because they were afraid to go to the doctor because they couldn't afford it? Oh, yeah, I know people like that. Does that seem right to you? No, man, absolutely not. Well, you know, we think there's a we think there's a better way. Or um, wouldn't you like to have the freedom to go out and start your own business, but you can't because your insurance is tied to your employer? Yeah, yeah, that would be great, but I can't go anywhere. Well, wouldn't you like your insurance? Did you know in most countries your insurance isn't tied to your employment at all? Wouldn't that be easier? Yeah, that would be easier. You know, and and it's having those kinds of conversations. And, you know, so amongst the leftists among us, I can throw around words like single payer or the biggest S word of all. And you just can't say those to people because they've become toxic. You have to talk about concepts. You know, we're not going to talk about UBI. We're going to talk about, well, how are we all going to help once automation comes through and there aren't enough jobs? How are people going to eat? You know, I mean, you you have to you just have to speak in concepts because people are smart but they're they're very sensitive about terms. So looping it back to ACA in particular, I think a lot of people have seen those studies 
where Obamacare polls about 20 points lower than ACA amongst people who don't know they're the same thing. Right. And so terms matter, uh, language matters, but the concepts I think people are a lot more aligned on than you would think. People are getting radicalized around healthcare because it's one of those things that hits all of us. Yeah, totally. And healthcare is one of those things that, you know, just to quickly bring it to context for archaeologists, I have seen friends, you know, this is anecdotal, but I've seen friends who have left the career of archaeology because healthcare is not something that they see as, you know, being viable. And so, you know, they get sick or they get injured and, you know, there's not adequate coverage through, you know, contracts and, you know, they end up leaving it and leaving the field and, you know, they're brilliant archaeologists, but they have to choose a different profession that has enough stability that provides for health care. And I think that that should be something, you know, I, I don't think you should have to choose between your, your profession and being healthy. You know, I, no, and I don't think that, I don't think that helps society either. And that that to me is one of the funniest things because Republicans are supposed to be like really into entrepreneurs and self starters. I mean, <laughs> I think we all know the secret is that they want entrepreneurs with inheritances. But let's pretend like they were on like they were on the level with that. I mean, that's when I quit my job. You know, I was large corporate, amazing health insurance, all that kind of stuff for twenty years. When I walked out of my job. And I asked my mom if she was going to have a panic attack about it. The only thing she said to me was, promise you get health insurance. Because yeah. that's, I mean, that's that's the thing, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's scary and it's key, but we should be making it easier for mobility, for um, career mobility, for, for new ideas, for, for different things like that. Because, quote, unquote, small businesses or, I mean, the freelance economy in general is vital and it's a great way for people to to live their dreams and help people but uh you know it's a lot scarier to do it and i mean geez i don't have kids or anything if i had kids i just couldn't do it like that would be completely selfish so for me it's like well what happens happens but i mean you can't have children and start freelancing you know i mean it just it's it's absurd yeah it's absurd it puts a lot of limitations on it so then the the pathway to getting health care or you know even getting medicare there's a lot of confusion about that so the open enrollment starts november 1st and it's been the period of open enrollment has been drastically reduced right uh yes it's been shortened and i don't have the exact date right in front of me so you can put a content note on that but i, I with all things that depend on government websites recommend you just start as soon as possible after November 1st anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important that you're talking to people about this. And when we talked about this, we wanted to have it air before the open enrollment period because one thing that that the Trump administration has done because they haven't managed to kill the ACA yet, they've killed the advertising budget for the ACA. So, which is just the most cynical thing I can possibly imagine. So their, their basic idea is if people don't know about it, they won't sign up for it, and yeah. it will fail. Well, super. So everybody who cares about health care and, I mean, the ACA is, is trash, but it's better than what we had before. And so let's keep it rolling and get as many people covered as possible. So everybody should be shouting from the rooftops, here's your open enrollment period, go get it, uh, because no one else is going to tell you. The government's not going to tell you now. Um. And then, so uh, I guess the one caveat for anything that I talk about here is there's a lot of state-specific rules, and this is a national podcast, so um, 
you know, buyer beware on stuff like this because some states have expanded Medicaid, some states haven't, some states still have their own state exchange, some states have to go to healthcare.gov. Some of us, some states had phenomenally successful exchanges, but Governor Matt Bevan shut them off, and so now we're going to healthcare.gov. So um, there's just a lot of options, but I'm going to talk in general about how they work, and I think that'll be close enough to get people on the right road. Nice. So do you want me to talk a little bit about the enrollment process and the costing? That'd be a good place to start? Yeah, I think that'd be a good place to start walking us through that. Yeah, so basically what you need is you need um, to know your projected income for 2018, because now we're signing up for 2018 coverage. So you need to have an estimate of your income for 2018, and you need to know anything that you need to know that, that is available to you if you do have employer coverage uh, you need to know what's available to you there, either through your spouse, through yourself, whatever, because there are a lot of rules um, that, you know, if, if you have employer coverage, you can't get some ACA plans or you can't get them for the same price or things like that. So you need to be able to walk through all those things. But just for your standard single freelancer, which I'm guessing is a lot of your crowd, uh, it's just going to be you want to have an estimate of what you're going to make. That's all you have to start with. And then you go to either healthcare.gov or to your local site. And it'll start asking you those kind of questions. And, you know, what's your age? What's your zip code? What's your gender? And then you tell it your income. And so the reason for that is, and you, you always want to answer all the questions and have it actually priced based on those questions. And the reason for that um, is something that a lot of people don't understand is that there are subsidies or credits or whatever you want to call them that the federal government funds to offset the base plan amount, but those are calculated on your income. So you don't want to go out and Google what does the exchange plan in my state cost, or you don't want to ask your friend what is your exchange plan cost. None of that is valid because it's all, uh, it's all keyed to the amount of money you make. That is a really so, important point to know. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm on the exchange, by the way, and I didn't know anything about it before I quit my job. But that is, yeah, that's the first. That's the first thing you want to know um, about that is, 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 yeah, there's a there's a lot of misunderstandings out there where people are like I can't afford the ACA uh, because my friend is on it, and you know they pay four hundred dollars a month, and you know what does your friend do? Oh, well, you know he's X Y Z middle class professional job here, and I'm like, well, you're kind of broke, so it's not going to cost that much for you. Did you know that? No. Well, okay. So the most important thing is to get on the dang website and let it quote you with your exact information. That's the first thing. Um, and so then at that point, you will get uh, a list of options. The options you will get vary a lot by state uh, and aren't as good as they should be because of terrible things the federal government and the insurance companies are doing to try to kill the ACA and are making insurers exit in droves and so it, it's not the, the choice is not great but you will have a choice if you even if you only have one insurer you will have a choice between a gold silver and bronze plan and much as they imply those three different tiers are three different levels of coverage so your bronze plan is the closest thing it's not technically a catastrophic plan because that's a technical term of the insurance industry but it's the closest thing to a, you're never going to use this unless you get real messed up, but you have it. 
it's cheaper. It covers very little. The out-of-pocket is really high, all that kind of stuff. But if, like, if you get hit by a car or cancer or something, like something is going to kick in for you. Um, That's a bronze plan. A silver plan is, you know, somewhere in the middle. It has more coverage. Uh, it has higher premiums. It has, you know, it has this. It has this. So, but, but, so my silver plan, for example, um, covers uh, all preventative care with no copay. So I can go to my gynecologist every year. I can go for a physical every year. Uh, it covers basic medications for free. I get my birth control, my Zoloft, my Wellbutrin. All that is no copay. Um, it has a really crappy network, which is the downside. So always make sure if you have a if you have a doctor you're tied to and you have choices, you check your network. Um, but but though, but but it does you know generally for those kind of things. I was pleasantly surprised when I refilled my prescription for the first time and didn't have to pay anything. That's better than my work insurance was. So so you have to read all those details and 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 then there's the gold plan, which again is a higher monthly premium but pays for a lot more stuff. And so then it becomes a balance of what premium can I afford versus how do I think I'm going to use it versus how much do I think I'm going to use to help you make the right choice amongst those. And that's how you pick your plan, but only after you've priced it for your own income level. And if I may anticipate a question, uh, what if I guess my income level wrong? Uh. Well, listener, funny you should ask. So (laughs) the way that it works at the end of the year is as part of your tax return filing process, there is what I would call a true-up, um, where so you'll get a form in the mail, a 1095A or something like that, that says, you know, this is the premium base level, this is the credit we gave you to reduce the cost, this is the net cost you paid. You hand that either to your accountant or key it into your TurboTax or whatever. We'll probably talk about those kinds of things later. And... It runs through all that, and then once it knows your actual income for the year, it does some math, and if you underestimated your income, you're going to owe money because you got your health insurance for too cheap. You're going to owe money on your tax return. If you overestimated your income, you're going to get money back because you paid too much for your insurance. So it makes you right at the end of the year. Um, What you can't do is habitually year after year – um, underestimate your income and owe a ton at the end of the year, but you're allowed to, you know, within reason, and especially your first year, you can have a big settling up process. So, like, I myself, it was my first year freelancing. I had no idea how much money I was going to make. So I purposely overestimated it to pay higher premiums because I'm a, I was afraid of owing a lot. Yeah. Um, but that's a terrible that's a terrible strategy if you have any idea what you're going to make because you want that money now, not, not at the end of the year. Gotcha. But anyway, so it's your best estimate, but the government gets right with you one way or the other um, at tax time. <clears throat> so that's picking a plan. Um, I don't know. I guess another thing I, I thought we could probably talk about for a second was um, your editing rights. This doesn't have to flow. Okay, so yeah. Okay, so a couple of key points, just of things that I notice about stuff that my clients have uh, gotten wrong or misunderstood about it, and also just one tax tip. Um, So number one is check out Medicaid. Some states have expanded it. 
um, to where it's more than you would think. Some states haven't, but you can have some pretty lean years, you know, net income-wise when you're when you're a freelancer. There's no shame in that. Yeah. And, um, you know, those programs are there for a reason. And I've actually had uh, clients, you know, in, in their early years of starting businesses who, you know, they didn't grow up, quote-unquote, poor. They never understood Medicaid. They didn't really know what it was. And we get to the end of the year, and they had no health insurance. And I'm like, man, you could have just gotten Medicaid. Like, really? <laughs> yeah, you didn't make any money this year, dude. You know? <laughs> and so, because you know, they've been living off their savings, trying to start a business or, yeah. you know, do whatever. And so make sure you know those Medicaid amounts. Um, uh, the state exchanges will absolutely test that when you enroll. That's a, that's another reason why you should always go test it anyway, whether you think you're going to buy it or not, because it might pop up and be like, hey, you can get Medicaid. So that that's a, that's the number one thing that people miss. Um, the number two thing I want to mention is there's there are several exceptions to so you know there's this mandate where you're required to to have it or you pay a seven hundred dollar fee on your tax return that's going to go up next year, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but um, in my experience, I've I've found that there are so many exemptions to that that uh, you know you can often not. Uh, you know, it, it, like when I go through TurboTax, and and we can go into more detail on that later. You know, it'll it'll ask me several questions on like were the following conditions present uh, in your employment, and it, and it'll ask like which months out of the year could you not afford uh, healthcare, and it's like yep. well, all of them, and then you don't have to pay. Right, that's actually the one that I'm going to talk about. Nice, uh, because the affordability one is the one that trips people up the most. Because uh, what I see a lot of times is when I get a client who comes in and I say, you know, what was your coverage, whatever, I didn't have it. Okay, well, let me see if I can get you out of it. Is there any reason you didn't have it? Oh, um, it wasn't affordable, and there's an affordability exception. True, but that exception is not your opinion. That exception <laughs> has math. Yeah. It has math. It has a formula. And most importantly – that math and that formula are based on what I told you about before, where you have to price it with the credits for what's truly affordable for what your actual payment would have been. Oh, yeah. So so if somebody told you your insurance was going to be $300 a month and you said, F that, I can't afford that, but it's okay because there's an affordability exception, that is, that is not how that works. Um, so, you know, I, the risks of audit are low. low whatnot, et cetera. But just FYI, your opinion that you can't afford health insurance is not the affordability exception. Yeah, it that's is, really good it to is, know. Yeah, it's the, it's the actual amount that you would pay counting all the credits I told you about. And if that amount is over 8.5% of your income, then it's unaffordable. If it's under 8.5% of your income, it's affordable. Whether you think it is or not, I'm not here to debate that with you. I'm just telling you, FYI, that's what the affordability exception is. FYI. Nice. Um, so then to talk about the mandate for a second. Um, so the mandate, like we said, it's this fee. And so if you don't have coverage, you don't meet the exceptions, you assess this fee on your tax return. So I would like to, for a moment, encourage everybody to find the absolute only silver lining of the Trump administration. Uh, 
And the silver lining of the Trump administration is he doesn't understand how health insurance works, and so he thinks the mandate is a bad idea. Um, of course, the reason we have the mandate is if you don't have a mandate, then only healthy people that then, then no healthy people get insurance, and it messes up the pools, and that's a whole economics lecture. But you need the mandate because you need all people in the pool at all times to spread the risks out mathematically appropriately. Otherwise, the markets don't work. But anyway, having said that, Trump doesn't understand that, and so Trump signed an executive order in January saying that uh, the IRS is not to enforce the mandate. <laughs> um so here, here, it's like this. Uh, He's I think such that's an terrible idiot. policy. It's terrible policy, but my clients can use seven hundred dollars in this world, and so I advise my clients to follow that executive order and not assess the mandate on their tax return. Um, and that's not cheating. A, because there is an executive order that you're relying on. It's our president. I mean, who are we to question him? <laughs> and B, on your tax return on page two of your 1040, on the line where you're supposed to put in your penalty, there's a box beside it where, you, where it says X here if you had coverage. And so if you have coverage, you X there and put zero. And what you're supposed to do in a pre-Trump world is if you didn't have coverage, you don't X there and you put $695. What my clients are doing and what I recommend you maybe do with some caveats I'll say in a second is you don't X the box and you also don't write in the $700. So you just leave um, it blank. You just leave it blank. And so you have told the IRS you didn't have coverage and you have just not charged yourself that penalty because Trump said that the IRS – can't go after it wow donald trump welcome to the resistance yeah i mean you know you i mean he's gonna kill us all so he might as well have 700 dollars <laughs> to spend before the nuclear cloud comes right so yeah. just do it in my opinion um so that that comes with you know there, there there's a lot of debate about the risk of that um you know whether they will come back and assess it um there's a good debate that's way too wonky for this about whether the irs ever had the right to collect that in the first place because it's not a tax or whatever. Um, but uh, the, the best thinking is, is that it's not super likely they're going to come for it, and if they do come for it, they'll come for that and maybe interest. It's nearly impossible that they will charge you a penalty because there was a friggin' executive order that said you didn't have to pay it. Um, so as with anything in life, it comes with risk, and I always put that in writing for my clients before I file that way. But that is the way that I do it, and that is my tip to you for next year, if even after all the things that we talked about on how to price it and get the best price, and even if then it's less than 8.5% of your income and you still, still, still feel like you can't afford it, just keep in mind that if we still have President Trump by then, um, <laughs> you, you, might be, you might have a filing position to take there. Yeah. So that's that. I can't believe that. That's that. I I mean, it is a silver lining, but it's just it's just so funny, and it's it's so uh, diagnostic of just like the blundering idiocy of this administration. Yeah. Oh, it feels like 
little dirty to say, well, Trump did this thing and we're going to take advantage of it. I mean, trust me, that feels awful to say. Um, and yes, like literally, if we really don't have a mandate in this program long term, the insurance markets will collapse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it, it's, it's my it's my job as a professional to get my clients the best legal answer, and it's my opinion that that is the best legal answer for them. So take that as you will. Nice. Um, and then the other – sorry, one other thing I, I wrote a note about, um, part of this whole thing to try to kill the open enrollment process is this year it's going to be closed on Sundays for system maintenance because who on earth would pick a weekend – to learn about and enroll for health insurance other than everybody. So, um, FYI, oh, wow. you know, if this is a weekend, if this is a weekend thing for you, it's a Saturday thing for you, just so you know. Nice. So th I can't remember the exact date that it closes either. It's, it's something like, I think it's only open for like either two or four weeks. It's, it's just this like shockingly narrow window to get health care. So uh, again, a reminder to anybody listening, like Don said earlier on, um, you know, the open enrollment starts November 1st and just get on it as fast as you can after November 1st. Yeah, I've gotten a little tinfoil hat-ish, but I legit don't trust them to, you know, not have unscheduled maintenance to, you know, all sorts of things like that. I figure if Trump can tell Puerto Rico they have to pay back hurricane relief, they can do anything to this website they want. So just hop on on as soon as you can. Yeah. Definitely. So I think, uh, is there is there more to know about about healthcare? Um, it, it sounds like that's it's easier than I would have expected. Um, and you know, I, I I went through the Oregon Exchange um, uh, last year, and uh, that was kind of my feeling of it. Is uh, I had never gone through an exchange before, but um, I was actually surprised at how easy it was um you know I, I expected way more uh way more pain and suffering to get health care and uh you know it just took me maybe an hour uh to fill out yeah. all the forms and stuff and then uh i got a confirmation email and i was uh insured but i guess uh here's yeah here's there's, a, a hu there's a huge intimidation factor there right so yeah. i would think for most listeners of this podcast uh, if they actually dig into it, they will be surprised at how easy it is. Um, I do think that when you think about the general public and their tech savvy and their access to technology and and literacy and even the numeracy to decide between the gold, silver, and bronze plans and all that, I think it's still unconscionably complicated yeah. as a general national system of healthcare. But within within the confines of this podcast. I think people will be pleasantly surprised, both at the prices they can get and at how easy it is to sign up. And so that's the whole the whole point of this meet and greet session. What that I'm doing is I really plan on mostly like sitting and drinking a beer so people can get on their laptops and do it beside me, and then realize, well, duh, I can do this for myself every year. That's really the point. Um, you know, it's it, it's not that it's that hard. It's that well, somebody's going to be there to answer my questions that I don't feel dumb around and. And all that kind of thing like that. But I think if you if you log on and do it, you'll be pleasantly surprised. Nice. And so that's um, th that leads me to one question about it is so you do have to re-enroll every year, right? So like if I'm covered right now on November 1st, I still have to log back on and go through. I and... be 
believe that that is a state-specific rule, so I will not okay. comment on gotcha. that, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, check your uh, – because I'm, I'm almost positive that in Kentucky um, – that you that it will re-enroll you in the same plan, or it will make a guess as to your closest plan. But I that is not something I trust to be the same state by state. So I would just rather not pontificate on that if that's all right. Yeah, totally. I don't want anybody accidentally losing their health care because I said no, just leave it. It'll be the same. <laughs> <laughs> so check. <Yeah. laughs> so that is something for me to do some homework on then, because uh, this is the first year that I've gone through the Oregon Exchange, so I've got to figure out how all this works. But, uh, you know, overall, it, in Oregon, administrative-type things like that are just surprisingly easy. Like, going to the DMV is uh, oddly a pleasant experience, and, and voting is also just incredibly easy. Uh, so, you know, I wish more yeah, states were I like that. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't agree to be on this, so you can, you know, make me feel bad about Kentucky, dude. We're doing our best. We're doing our best. <laughs> There's a lot of miss about Kentucky. Uh, you know, the the people are at the top, uh, and then you know, bourbon is right next to them. Yeah. And the administration and bureaucracy and government structure is at the bottom. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Word. I hear you. Yeah. So I think that that's a good um, point to pivot over to taxes then. Um, you know, once you get your health care sorted, it's it's really kind of tied hand in hand to your your tax situation. So what are like what's the starting point that, that people kind of need to know about taxes? Sure. Um, the most direct connection of what we're talking about right now is about health care expenses work on your taxes for a self-employed person. Um, so. The actual net cash amount that you end up paying for your insurance premiums, be it the exchange after your credits or some other way that you're getting health insurance or whatever, all of that is also deductible on your taxes, whatever you're left with. And unlike uh, employees who you know have to be able to itemize their deductions to, to do that and things like that, you can do that right on the face of your return. So anybody can deduct their health insurance premiums. It's somewhere on the bottom half of the 1040 self-employed health insurance deduction. That number pops right there. There are certain caps and things like that that your software will do for you, but you can take a deduction. The other thing I would point out on that is if you have a lot of out-of-pocket uh, self-employed people have the right and the ability to set up an FSA account for themselves. Um, a health expense flexible spending account, which means you throw money into it and that money is a tax deduction and then you pay out of that for your co-pays and your whatnot. So that's another thing that you should know. Um, that is really helpful to know. I didn't even know that that was an option for you know self-employed or, or 1099 employees. Yeah, so, you know, the the utility of that depends a lot on what tax bracket you're in. Uh -huh. So, you know, if you're making little, very little money and you're in an earned income position, it doesn't really do much. If you're in a, um, you know, a 10% tax bracket, I mean, 10% is 10%, but those accounts have fees. So you have to be careful with that and do a little math. But I myself, because my therapist is amazing and not in my network, and so I run all of my therapist fees through an FSA, so at least I'm getting a tax deduction on what I spend with her. 
So, oh, cool. Um, yeah, I'm with somebody, imaginatively enough, called HSABank.com, but um, some of your individual banks, a lot of credit unions, those kind of things actually have an option for you to set up a personal HSA, so check into that. Nice. Okay, so should we just talk um, just straight up basic setting up your business as a freelancer? Yeah, so um, for listeners, imagine the scenario that uh, I'm sure many of you are in. You're looking into a, uh, say, a CRM archaeology contract, and this is just a hypothetical situation. You're looking at the option of, of joining onto a, a short-term project, maybe it lasts a few months, and say the contract calls for 1099 employees or self-employed contractors. Um, that would be the difference, Don, correct me if I'm, if I'm off here, the, that would be the difference between being an employee on the payroll of the company of the contractor. Um, so if it's like Acme Archaeology, you are not technically an employee of Acme Archaeology if you are a 1099 employee. You are a self-employed contractor who is being contracted to do this, this, this project. Right, and to the point where I think it's um, helpful to drill that into people's heads. I I don't like the word 1099 employee because okay. those are those are mutually exclusive things. An employee gets a W two, a contractor gets a 1099. Gotcha. That's, that's how it is, um, and that's not to be pedantic. It's to help people keep it straight. Right. Um. So so yeah. So so the first thing to understand about that is is yes, you are. Then at that point, you're a contractor, you're not an employee. There are a lot of technical rules about whether it's legal to make you a contractor versus an employee. But what I find for the most part is on an individual level, nobody is willing to rock the boat to challenge that. So that's more of something for businesses to get good tax advice from from their ethical accountants. Um, but... What it means for you is the first, the most important thing it means for you, dollars and cents, is you have to make more as a contractor to get the same net pay that a W-2 employee does. And that's because if you're a W-2 employee, if you, you – most people don't pay attention to this, but I'm a nerd. So <laughs> if you're a W-2 employee, your Social Security and your Medicare – Half of that is withheld from your paycheck, and half of that is paid by your employer. You're only paying half. If you're a 1099 employee, <laughs> 1099 contractor, uh, you cover both. So you are out the door from the very beginning, money behind in that prospect. So that is why that's the most important thing you need to know. Yeah. So if you're somewhere and – you know the employees are making. If you, you know the employees are making fifty dollars an hour, and some and you think that that's a good rate, and somebody offers to contract to you for fifty dollars an hour, that's not the same thing. So just if if you're if you're converting from employee to contractor, or if you have a choice in some way, or anything like that, you need to be aware that there is a ding to that to the tune of you know low single digits, I mean, high single digits percent of your income that you're out right away for that. Nice. And so that's, um, 
maybe maybe I'm off on the terminology on this one too, but that's really the key difference between your like burdened rate and your actual like net income. So say if your burdened rate uh, on the contract was that. I don't know, like $98 an hour or something, but you're only taking home like 23 an hour. That's where that's going is because the employer is is paying for half of your Social Security and, and, and Medicaid. Um, if I don't, burdened rate and those kind of contracts is not something that I come across in my industry. Okay. So um, I wouldn't want to speak for that. If you want, you could show me something later and you could, you know, record a coda where I can give you my opinion on that. But I don't know those terms, so I wouldn't say that. Okay, that's fair enough. Uh, I do have an episode. It's an older episode uh, for a any listeners. Uh, you know, some of the details are a little hazy, but um, there's there's an episode that I recorded with uh, Sonia Hutmacher who covered um, the different kind of wage situations that archaeologists can encounter on uh, contracts so refer back to that if you have any anxiety over uh, your your wage and what exactly you know government contracts uh, can allow in terms of, of payment and stuff like that but yeah. for this one in in terms of actually handling your your taxes as a 1099 contractor uh, you know here we are I did it I finally did it <laughs> yay I'm learning I'm so proud <laughs> So uh, I got on a little tangent there with with, uh, with with taking care of your own, uh, you know, like uh, Social Security and Medicaid as as a uh, uh, self-employed contractor. But um, I'm sure there's there's a lot of other things that you need to look out for when you set out on your own as a 1099. Yes, absolutely. I just want to talk about that one first because cash is king and all of these things. Um, and so when you fill out your tax return, you see this line called self-employment tax, and you're like, what the hell is that? That is you putting in both halves of your Social Security and Medicare. A regular employee never sees that on the return because their piece gets sucked out on their paycheck, and we don't settle up with that on a tax return. So it's just – it's just it's it's a it's a word that you'll see on your tax return that makes you pay more money, and so I want you to know what it is. Um, so then when you're setting up – striking out on your own, the first thing that you will think about is whether you need to actually form a business, an LLC, a uh, whatever you might want to be. Uh, I will not speak for archaeologists because I'm not an attorney, so this is just a broad statement for anybody thinking about striking out on their own. There is a general sense that the moment that you have to be in a business, you should have some sort of LLC for many, many industries and lines of work. That isn't true, particularly if you're on your own. If you've got a partner or you've got an employee or if you've got things like that, you almost always do want to. If it's just you, it's not that simple of a calculation, and it doesn't save you any tax. In fact, it usually costs you more because most states have some sort of filing fee for LLCs and LLC returns. Okay. But I'm not an attorney, so I'm going to leave that there. All I'm going to say is just generally speaking, don't take it as gospel that to run a business you need an LLC. I myself do not have one. Gotcha. Um, and so that's so, generally a safe case for freelancers uh, across the board no matter what kind of industry it is? 
well, it's a, it's a, it's a, there are certain, there are certain industries. And again, this is also state, state specific as well, okay. uh, because different states have different laws about the liability protection that a single member LLC provides. So there are court cases that go around in different states, and some of them have punched right through that because they said, well, you're an LLC, but it's just you. So if anybody screwed up, you're the one who screwed up. This is bullshit. We're not letting you protect yourself like this. And some states have said, no, you formed this thing, and this thing does that. And, you know, so it's a state-by-state thing. So as with many things, this is one where I punt and say, call an attorney. They better not charge you much for it. Or find an attorney you know who practices in your state who knows the rules about that. Gotcha. Okay. Because um, in some states it's very helpful, and in some states it's nothing but a fee every year. And who wants that? So um, in Kentucky, for example, you pay like $20 a year to the Secretary of State, but you also have to file a tax return every year with a $175 minimum tax. And that's not the end of the world, but if it's to keep – oh, and it's another tax return that either you or you're paying someone to prepare. So not the end of the world, but if it's not getting you anything, I'd rather have that 200 bucks myself right. personally. <laughs> so, okay. So however, though, just because – So let's say for whatever reason you've done your research and you've decided, I don't need an LLC. I'm just going to be a sole proprietor. I'm me out there in the world. Well, you still, in my opinion, very much want to get an EIN, an employer identification number. And the reason for that is is when you're handing off W-9s to people, at least people who are doing the good work and asking you for W-9s so they can 1099 you, um, I like to minimize how many people see my social security number. Yeah. So you can get an EIN that is for yourself. Sole proprietor is a box you can check on the EIN request site. And so when you hand your W-9 to people so they can 1099 you, it has an EIN, not your social security number. So that's just a personal data protection thing. You want that no matter what. That is also a really good piece of advice. Yeah. Thank you. Um that's just a, it's a best practice. It's not required, but I, it's, I mean, you know how data identity theft and all that stuff goes. You don't want every Yahoo in the world and their accounting department seeing your Social Security number. Yeah. So um, uh, the next thing then is I think the thing that trips people up the most is how to capture all of their income and expenses from their business to make whether they do their taxes or whether professional does their taxes as painless as possible. So it's pretty simple if you've got a small business. If you have a bigger enterprise and you have more money to spend on impressive things, but I'm targeting this towards people who are just starting off and trying to do you know, the bare minimum to get good results. And so your bare minimum to get good results is to get a separate bank account, So you set that up, and under your EIN, it's a small business account. Most credit unions will give you one for free, Um, and that becomes where all of the money you make from that job goes in, from any of your jobs, goes in, and all of your expenses come out. You get a debit card that's just for that business. All your money goes in there, and then when it comes time – to you know, spend your money and live your life, you do bulk transfers from that business account over to your personal account 
all in one lump, and then you buy groceries and go to the bar and take vacations out of your personal account. So that way everything is completely split, easy peasy clean. Um, and then at that point, depending on what bank you've signed up for, some banks have some sort of built-in categorizing software. Some of it's good, some of it's crappy. But otherwise, if you want to save money with an accountant or time for yourself at the end of the year, I would recommend something as simple as getting a Mint account, uh, getting a You Need a Budget account, getting something like that, and um, only putting your business accounts in that account so it's only your business. And so it's, it's meant for people to build budgets, but what it actually does is gives you a very simple income statement because because to do your budget, you teach it that Staples is where you buy your pencils and, you know, whatever else you're, you're teaching it. And so then it categorizes all that stuff. It downloads your transactions directly. It groups it all once you teach it things. The shell is where I get my gas and the this and the this. And it categorizes all that stuff to, quote, unquote, help you budget. But what you really want at the end of the year is to print that out and go, this is what I spent and this is what I spent it on. And that's your expenses for your tax return. Oh, smart. So, yeah. Giving away all my secrets because I'm not taking clients right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I tell, I tell my clients this. I tell my clients this. It's, um, being a do-gooder accountant is a real, it's a real pain in the ass. But, yes, like don't – you know, if you have thousands and thousands of transactions and you're doing all sorts of things, like, yes, you need to hire me to do that and run the data and parse the data and all that stuff. But, you know – Otherwise, it's not my favorite thing to do anyway, so I'd rather not. So just do that. It tracks your stuff. Yeah. Um, what kinds of things what? are yeah. expenses that um, are are valid expenses as as like business expenses? If if you're a uh, you know independent contractor. So the basic rule here is um, well. Two things. One, to get the biggest expense, um, if you have a job, and I feel like an archaeologist would do this a lot, but you would drive. Oh, yeah. Um, your mileage deduction is a much better option than gas. So, but you have to track it, and that's a pain. Um, but there is an app called, oh, there's an app. This is, this is going to come out in edit. Um, Sorry. All good. There's an app called Everlance that I use, and I'm sure there are many competitors on the market, but it logs your miles and then allows you to export it to a spreadsheet. Um, and there's two ways you can use it. Uh, if you are a really low-volume driver like me, I don't go out to clients a lot, you can for free manually start the trip manually stop the trip so it records the trip the date the time where you went but it, you know it tracks it on the gps how many miles it is you push start you push stop you give it a note tell it what client it's for so you can do all your billing or cost accounting later um and off you go if you drive all the time and never remember to start and stop it and you're not afraid of big brother knowing where you are because they already do there is a professional option that actually just tracks you all the time. It knows all your trips. It knows everywhere you went. And 
at the end of the month, you dump it, and you you know you can tell by address and just start you know business personal business personal business personal and do it like that. But um, that is the way you want to do it because um, the deduction for mileage is a lot higher than the deduction for gas expense because your mileage deduction is meant to be all encompassing. So it covers your tires and your oil changes and your wear and tear and all that stuff all nice. in one number. So um, that's what I would recommend there. So I guess from there, so that's one place that a lot of people underclaim their expenses. So let's go to two places where people overclaim their expenses. The first one is food and drink, unsurprisingly. Yeah. Um, this varies a lot by industry, how prevalent this is. So some industries, it's a lot more straightforward. I had to drive for 12 hours to this site, and we ate along the way, and I stayed there for three days, and we ate there and all that. That's fairly straightforward. Um, but if you're in an industry or a line of work where your clients are also your friends, mm, mm, and you go out for dinner or you have a drink or you do whatever – um, that gets a little shady. Yeah. And then, of course, I always have clients who are like, I'm a writer. I go to the coffee shop and write. I should be able to deduct my coffee. You know, those kinds of people. That is not true. Okay. That is not true. So um, the most important thing to remember about an expense deduction is you're only supposed to expense things that you incurred because you have a business. If you drink coffee every day, you drink coffee every day. Um, now, if you're actually out traveling, I would make the argument you don't have a coffee. You know, you don't have a coffee maker at home, so you can take that Starbucks expense, right? Or right. I'm sorry, you're on the West Coast, whatever great coffee chain you have, but <laughs> that kind of thing. But if you decide you're sick of your house and want to go right at lunch, you don't you don't get to take the deduction for the lunch because you decided not to eat at home. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay, so that's a big one. Um, and then again, like I said, if you're doing business with people you also have personal relationships with, so um, like let's face it, you'd be at the bar with them anyway, but you did talk about business some, then it becomes a bit of a judgment call. Uh -huh. I like to kind of take half of those. You know, just you're, it, it's more art than science, but it goes a long <laughs> way with the IRS to show that you made an attempt. Right. You know. So um, that – and then the other thing that people screw up a lot is the home office deduction. Ah, yes. That was going to be one of my next questions. Yeah. The most important thing to remember about the home office deduction is you can only take the home office deduction if you have to work at home because your employer requires it or you're you know, so far remote there's no place for you to work. Uh-huh. Um, you know, things like that. So if you choose, if they have an optional telecommute policy, and so you choose to work at home, not deductible. There was perfectly free office space there for you to take. Gotcha. Do you see the distinction? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, a, it's, about who, it's about who wants it. And so if the employer just allows it and you prefer it, that is not deductible. Now, of course, if you're a freelancer, you don't have an employer, so that all becomes a little more interesting. But your home office space, to be safe, should always be dedicated space. 
your now, second bedroom that all you do is work in, yeah. you know, those kind of things like that. So let's say, for example's sake, you, you're not a freelancer. You do have, like, you're on, you're on salary with a company, um, but you work remotely from, from home because there's, there's no other option. Is, is that a valid deduction? Yes, that's a valid. If your if your employer does not offer you office space, okay, then you can deduct it because you had you have to work somewhere. But if your employer says, "Well, here's your cube, but you don't have to be here if you don't want to," because you can just telecommute, yeah, um, and you choose to telecommute because who likes an office? That's not deductible. That's a choice you made. Okay, that is good to so know. So that trips yeah that trips people up a lot. Um. And, you know, by the same token, if you work really long hours and so you get sick of the office, if you're an employee who gets sick of the office and so you like to come home and work there, or if you're – so, like, I'm a freelancer who has clients, so I rent my own office space. That's deductible, but just because half the time I don't feel like going to the office or I feel like leaving after a certain amount of hours, I don't get to deduct my home as well because I had a place to work. It's when you have to use your home that you can deduct it. If you, if you have another place to work, not counting a public space, but if you, if you have an office to work in, um, you do not go to deduct your home office. Nice. So those are the most common ones that I see. But other than that, it's just about, you know, keeping an eye on things. And then, oh, and then, of course, there's the matter, sorry, the most common one. What about my cell phone? What about my laptop? What uh, about, yeah. you know, Internet my bills. iPad? What about that kind of stuff? That stuff... Um, is your best, most honest estimate of the allocation of time that you use it. I take I take fifty percent of my phone and fifty percent of my laptop, and you know, but that might not be your truth. You might only use your laptop for work because they're clunky, and other than that, you're on your your iPad. Yeah. So if that's true, that's true. And you would probably have the apps and, and activity on that computer that would bear that out. So there's no there's no set rule, which is both nice and also a pain because people like guidelines, um, you know. So when in doubt, 50 percent. But like the the perfect example is hello in this smartphone cell phone age. Don't even try to have one phone and take the whole deduction for business. Like that's. That's a way to get laughed out and written up by the IRS really fast because, yeah. you know, because even if you say, well, I have to have that phone for business, well, sure, but you also have to have that phone for life. So, you know, you're not going to get away with it. That was a lot easier back when cell phones were those giant things in the car because those really were always for work, right? Right. So, but nowadays you're going to get a very, to the point where they actually require you, there's a separate place in your tax return where if you're taking business deductions for tablets, laptops, phones, things like that, you have to disclose it specifically to draw attention to it. What you paid for it, the percentage that you're claiming, and, um, you know, that. As far as your bill, same thing. I take 50% of my bill, whatever makes sense for you, that kind of thing. Okay, cool. So if you're working from home, you shouldn't be able to claim 100% of your like home internet bill uh, because you know, you're know you probably also using it to stream Netflix or HBO, whatever. Uh, so you would, you would then claim, like I don't know, 50% or whatever. Yeah. 
Okay, cool. Yeah. And if you think if you and if you think of it, it's kind. I mean, it kind of sucks, but it's also kind of a good deal because a lot of people have Netflix and no business, and they don't get to deduct anything at all. And the reality is, you would have that internet either way. So you kind of, it, it, it's human nature to feel like you're getting screwed, but you're actually think of it as that glass half full kind of thing. You're getting a deduction for something you were going to have, whether you had the business or not, which is pretty rare in the tax world. Yeah. Same with your phone. Nice. Uh, so one more question. Um, what sort of like tax implications are there if you end up getting a per diem uh, as part of your contract? Like, let's say they cut you a check uh, and then therefore it's it's tracked somehow. Um, what what goes on with that in, in the tax world? Um, are you talking about one that they cut you and then they never ask how much you spent? Or are you talking about one where you settle up? Uh, one where they cut you a check and don't ask what you spent. So like, for example's sake, uh, on a lot of archaeology contracts, um, you know, like say, say if there's a 10-day project, um, projects tend to be split up on 10-day on segments. So at the beginning of a 10-day your employer or whoever's in the field directing the the project would cut you a check for some amount uh, that's agreed to in the contract, and then you don't have to track that at all. Okay. So to the IRS, those kinds of buckets between we're paying you this much to dig and we're paying you this much to eat uh-huh. are completely artificial. That's a way that you can think of it with your contract person. Um, but to them, the whole amount that comes to you is income – and the whole amount that you spend is expense. So if you're getting a per diem for lodging or meals or anything like that, um, you want to track what you spent it on to deduct it. And you deduct it, and if it's less than your per diem, that's taxable income. If it's more than your per diem, that's a taxable overall loss, but it all still goes in the pool. So you might be thinking of it as, this is for my time at work and this is for my travel, but the IRS doesn't make those distinctions um, when you're not settling up. If you are settling up and you're a contractor, of course, it nets out to zero, so it doesn't matter. Um, and if you're an employee who gets your expenses reimbursed, that also is just ignored because you've netted out to zero. Cool. And there are the, the rare instances where you end up getting just a wad of cash uh, as your per diem. That's, that's invisible, right? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Cash handed to you under a table is not taxable. No, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. <laughs> I have a license to maintain here. Come on. <laughs> I'm a licensed CPA. Yeah. No, of course. Your cash. And, and, and you know, and that's, that's another point I would talk about is there's a certain school of thought that if you don't get 1099, it doesn't go on your tax return. Uh-huh. Um, good luck with that. If you get audited, they will – well, first of all, if it ever goes into a bank account, they find it. And then if not, there are general sorts of sanity text, tests that they go through. So now, now this, this wouldn't catch on little payments here or there, but, I mean, if you're a person who – I would assume most archaeologists get 1099 all the time because if people are doing it right, you're always making more than $600. But let's say that you don't get 1099, or if you're someone else who does a lot of little jobs and never gets them, um, you can't show up and file a tax return that says you made $10,000 last year, and the IRS comes in and says, well, your apartment looks okay. 
well, you've got clothes. Well, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So there's a little bit of a so and so that's why it's extra important to have that separate bank account. Everything goes in there. Best practice: if you get paid for some reason, five hundred dollars in cash, put that in your business account, so it gets looped in with everything else, and then again, transfer over and spend out of your personal account. That way, you see it all. Gotcha. And now to transfer over. Is there anything required or like suggested as a best practice even uh, that you invoice your your business account to just like leave an extra paper trail or you know like offer like a register of, of why money leaves? No, your um, no, I mean so your business is invisible and but, but so the best practice is the transfer itself and to do the transfer not for fifty dollars at a time because, you know, you needed $50 that day. You, you want to get in the habit of sort of paying yourself in lumps. Okay. So that way, when you're going through all your stuff, either with Mint or however you're doing it, you will see a transfer go out, and there won't be 7,000 of them because you'll do it once a week or however often you do it, and you'll always just know that's me paying myself, so I can't deduct that. That's really the point. I can't deduct that because that's just me moving money. And so... That makes it a lot cleaner than, like I said, you buying groceries out of that account and going with that travel groceries or home groceries and that kind of thing. So that's why you move it. So you just move it in round numbers, you know, not every day. You move it in round numbers, and then that helps you track things. But, no, you, there's no need to invoice yourself or anything like that because it's pretty clear when you look back through your bank activity what the transfer to another account you own versus, you know, something you spent somewhere. Nice. That is really good to know. So are there any other things in terms of, like, uh, common challenges or um, kind of, like, tips that people might not um, always know? That, you know, like, you, you, it sounds like you deal with a lot of freelancers. What are some of the common problems that they deal with or, or maybe, like, tricks that they probably often don't know? Um. A lot, most of it's what we went through. Um, this is all stuff that my clients who've gone to somebody else or have been trying to do it on their own learn the hard way. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's having all of your stuff intermingled uh, between business and personal. It's, um, you know, that that's the biggest one. Um, and just letting it get out of hand and waiting until the end of the year to try to figure everything out because then you just panic and it's terrible. So you keep up with it, you keep current with it, um, and then, then the oh, sorry. So there, there's two things, two costly things that I've had multiple clients come in and see me with. Uh, one was someone who had their bank accounts set up like that, but they thought they only had to pay tax on the money that actually moved to their personal account. So that's not true. Oh. <laughs> so everything you make, <laughs> that's yours. Um, it's not, you know, suspended in a trust where you can't touch it. So that's yours. So people like to talk about paying themselves because it's an easy way to think about it. But when you record your income on your tax return at the end of the year, the amount of money you quote unquote paid yourself is completely irrelevant to what you owe taxes on. It's, gotcha. what, it's what was given to you wherever you stuck it. If you stuck it in your personal account, your business account, a mattress, wherever you put it, that's your money. Okay. So that's number one. Number two is estimated taxes. Um, a lot of people get it half right 
because the the advice that people will throw out is whatever you make, put back 25 to 30% for taxes. And that sounds smart and that sounds good. And they come to me and they say, hey, my cousin told me to put back 25 to 30% in taxes. And there it is in my savings account right there. No, you pay it in every quarter. Uh, the IRS is not interested in whether you held it somewhere, totally planning to pay them in April or not. You pay them every quarter. Again, this is one of those things that's so much easier when you're an employee because you get that with holding off your check every time. The Your employer sends it to the IRS. They do all that fun stuff for you, but you are self-employed, and so the IRS is not about to let you only pay your taxes once a year just because you don't have an employer taking care of it for you. Yeah. So whatever you're putting back for your taxes, you pay it every quarter because if you don't, um, your late payments and interest and penalties and all that stuff build up over the whole time you were underpaid. So if, if you're in a situation – and you put back $4,000 for your taxes, let's say, and so you file your tax return, and, and you've got $4,000 of taxes, and you're like, hot damn, that's exactly what I put back. I'm perfect. <laughs> well, that's not how it works. You should have paid $1,000 the first quarter, and so they say that that first $1,000 is nine months late, and you should have paid $1,000 the second quarter. I think you're following what I'm saying now. Yeah. Okay. So you pay it. Um as you earn it. So two points about that. Well, one, one major point about that. You really do only have to pay it as you earn it. So if your work is super seasonal and spiky, just because you think you owe $4,000 at the end of the year doesn't mean it has to go in $1,000 every quarter. Like you might, I know this life, you might go a quarter and not get paid at all and then get paid a whole shit ton of money in the second quarter. You can, you know, you can catch it up and pay it all in the second quarter because when you file, if you've got a good accountant, there's math where you can actually tell them how much you earned in each quarter. That's a little advanced, but if you're somebody whose income spikes and valleys enough, it's worth your time or the time of a professional to look at that. Um, because you don't want to be in a situation where it's like, I didn't make any money this quarter. How am I going to pay that in? This is stupid. Yeah. Well, you don't actually owe tax for that quarter if you didn't make any money. Yeah. Right? It's just something they tell you for a shortcut. Take your whole amount for the year, divide it by four, pay it in. You yeah. know, that kind of thing. So um, that's the biggest thing on that is, yeah, this this whole put it back. You don't You don't put it back. You pay it in. That's very key. Gotcha. So CRM archaeologists, uh, if you're not working this winter, that's you. So uh, rewind a, f a few minutes and take notes. Yeah. Um, oh, and also the other thing about that is um, if you can't pay it in by April 15th because of what other reason, um, it, it's not like that quarter is gone forever. So just pay it when you get it. That That is also another thing gotcha and then for people who owe the number one thing that they don't know is never don't file because you owe money that is a very human tendency to do your tax return and it says holy christ i owe two thousand dollars i don't have it i'm just not going to file my tax return um 
It's logical. I've seen a lot of people do it. I think it's an emotional response people have. Yeah. It's very bad. Pain avoidance. It's very bad. <laughs> yeah. So for well, yeah, for two reasons. Number one, there are actually two separate penalties. There is there are filing related penalties and payment related penalties. Mm. So you can file a return saying, I owe you seven million dollars and I'm not giving you a dime. And if you file it on April fifteenth, you still avoid the filing penalty because you filed. Okay? So then you at least only have the payment penalty to worry about. The second part is if you're in a situation where if you haven't done this like immediately the year before, but you got really surprised because your first year freelancing, you didn't understand it, you've got that bill and you're like, oh my God, I can't pay it. Um, the IRS has payment plans. They're actually very user-friendly. And if you owe less than $50,000 and aren't currently on a payment plan and haven't screwed them over in a payment plan test, approval is almost always automatic. And without even requesting it, you can spread it over, I believe it's 72 months, but it's a very long time. Oh, wow. Um, and so you file your return. If you can pay a little of it when you file it, pay it, and then you log on and request a payment agreement, and then you're still in their good books. You're still going to pay interest and stuff because, hey, it's late, but you're not going to get them doing things like, oh, you know, like freezing your bank account or, you know, nasty stuff like that. As long yeah. as you keep current with those payments, they won't do any sort of aggressive collection actions. So always just own up to it, face it, even if you don't have the money, you file the return, you apply for an agreement. Nice. All of that is awesome advice and uh it's a lot of stuff to look out for so here's i guess here's the big question say say you're signing up for a a project that's contract based uh but the the person you know posting the the job offer asks you would you rather be a 1099 or do you want to go on our company books is it possible to make more money as a 1099 than uh, on company books if, you know, it's it's all the same? If, if what's all the same? If, like, say if it's if it's the same, like, work agreement um, and say, like, some, some employees on this or, you know, some contractors, say if the staff is split between contractors and employees, um, is it is it possible to make more money as a 1099 than as a uh, employee of uh, that company if if it's you know the exact same wage setup? Okay, so so like anything else, you have to do the math. But um, so th there's there's two pieces. Um, if you're getting paid the same amount as in x per hour, x per week, however your stuff is structured, right? Um, it is always better to be an employee um, unless they do something really wild where employees are expected to cover their own expenses because um, unreimbursed employee expenses are only deductible if you itemize your deductions and there's a whole bunch of caveats and crap like that so in, in some bizarre world where they're like we'll make you an employee but all your costs go out of pocket well that's trash you don't want to get anywhere near that. <laughs> but if it's, do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. so, so, like, 
like so don't get too ahead of yourself oh they're gonna they're gonna pay me five hundred dollars a week here you know as an employer five hundred dollars a week as a contractor i definitely want to be an employee well i mean make sure there's not some thing underlying where you have to pay your own travel and you don't get reimbursed or i mean that would be unconscionable but i just don't want to get in trouble where somebody you know angrily emails your podcast and says i thought it was always better to be an employee so that there are theoretical theoretical things um but also don't forget a benefit of being an employee is your employer is paying unemployment insurance for you you have workers comp um, all those sorts of things that are invisible that are benefits of being an employee that you're just out of luck on with your, when you're a contractor. Ah, yeah. So, I hadn't even considered right? that. Yeah. yeah. It's just better to be an employee. There's a reason they want to make you a contractor. Yeah. And there are all sorts of really squirrely job posts that I see for uh, CRM archaeology. CRM is just cultural resource management. It's just like the, the – um, you know, private sector, um, you know, contract-based archaeology. But there okay. are all sorts of squirrely, um, you know, wage setups, travel arrangements, um, expense reimbursements or no reimbursement kind of stuff. Uh, and so, you know, generally you see just kind of like uh, there's message boards and stuff and forums on Facebook where there will be these vigorous debates over it. They'll they'll reference the the job post and be like, "Dude, I'm not going to touch that with a ten foot pole." But you know, if if it's not a completely toxic job post, then it might be feasible to recoup some of those expenses as a 1099. It seems. Uh, yeah, it, it it depends on it, like anything else on your um, individual employment setup. So traditionally, I think in almost any um, in almost any industry, but you know, there's always exceptions. Some of the archaeology is one of them. Traditionally, the employee-employer relationship would, even in the worst companies I've worked for, if you have a necessary business expense, it got reimbursed. So you really were just taking home um, whatever your agreed wage was minus your taxes. But there are an infinite number of agreements and contracts and whatnot that an employer could try to rope you into. And so as with all things, the devil is in the details. So I don't like to make blanket statements, Yeah. but you know, 95% of the time you want to be an employee. Yeah. Nice. And that, that's generally my, my feel of it too is, and I've, I've been on kind of both ends of that. I've, I've had, you know, contracts where, um, you know, the, the person in charge, just straight up asked me they were like would you rather be a 1099 because i i can put you on the company books and unless you want to you know take care of all the expenses yourself and i was like well are you going to take care of the expenses and they're like yeah and i was like then i want to be an employee because it's yeah. you know i would really rather not deal with all of the the details that you know we just talked about so it's you know if you can get somebody else to you know handle the administrative hassle and the expenses and stuff like that then uh i don't know it seems like that's worth your time well, and there, and you have to remember, there's, so think about, like, how, generally speaking, our legal infrastructure exists to protect good people from bad people. Yeah. There's a reason why there are laws to force employers to make you an employee, but there are not laws um, to force employers to treat you as a contractor. There's a reason for that, because history and time shows that it's better to be an employee, and so that's what they're looking for is catching people treating you like a contractor when they're not supposed to be. 
Mm. So it's it's to it's to protect for that. That is a really good point to drill home. I was gonna say, like I said before. So I mean, if you were somebody you know who you know was out of cares to give. And, you know, you, you thought you're in a situation where you really were an employee. I mean, you can absolutely raise a huge old stink about that, but it's just, it's just almost never worth it unless you don't actually need the job to challenge an employer on that. Right. Yeah. So like I said, that that's, that's for the IRS to suss out. That's for, you know, the occasional ethical accountant in the world, like say me who has <laughs> told a client before that's an employee, not a contractor. And I'm not, I'm not doing your pay if you don't do it the right way, you know, so, so they get caught other ways. It, it's almost never helpful for an employee to stand up about that sort of thing. But I mean, that is theoretically possible. You know, if, if, if you're retiring and, and aren't worried about burning bridges and, you know, that's a good thing to bust people about, I guess, but for the most part, it's a losing battle for you to try to take that up with somebody to say, no, 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 really, you should make me an employee. So, yeah. So I guess, you know, to, to kind of wrap up, it sounds like if you're going to set out on your own as a 1099, the I think the biggest takeaway is you need an accountant. I would definitely recommend getting an accountant. Um, I would not go to H&R Block because that's worse than having no accountant at all. Um, I would try to find from word of mouth a reputable accountant who's used to dealing with freelancers and work with a person like that. And, you know... A, a way to cut the middleman, not a way to cut the middleman, a way to split the baby is if your business is sort of the same every year, you can always hire an accountant for one year, and if you can't afford to pay them every year, you can use that return as a bit of a roadmap sometimes and, you know, try to – That this is if you're small. This yeah. is if you're small. If you're big, if you're big, a professional accountant um, who is not, you know, extorting you – is going to be the best money you've spent. And a particular reason for that um, is a little thing called professional reliance, which is if you screw something up and the IRS comes to you and you screwed it up, they'll be like, man, you've got your own business. You knew you needed an accountant. You know, you, you, didn't, you didn't try as hard as you could to get this right, and we're going to charge you not only the tax you owe but interest and penalties and stuff like that. Yep. Whereas – if a CPA, because when I file your return, I have to sign it and put my tax preparer ID number on it, and I'm putting my professional reputation on it. And so then if you screw up, um, you get the point and be like, man, I, I did everything I could. I hired an accountant. She's a CPA and everything. It's not my fault. She's stupid. I'm just an, arche I'm just an archaeologist. What am I supposed to know about this? And nine times out of ten, unless we're talking like, you know, Enron defrauding billions of dollars, but if you're just a dude, then they're going to make you pay the tax, but they're not going to charge you any penalties or anything like that. They're going to be like, yeah, 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 you did your best. We're not mad about it. You just owe us the difference now. Yeah. Whereas, you know, like I said, if you're just if you're just going, you know, two sheets to the wind on it and trying to do it yourself, they'll be like, you should have known that you didn't know everything you had to do here. So, you know, you're in trouble now too. So, um, I, I rec I recommend an account if, if you're freelancing as a full time job, you need an accountant. How's that? I think that sounds great, and yeah. uh, thank you so much for all of your your incredibly valuable uh, advice and and providing a roadmap through not only healthcare but also uh, doing taxes right and setting out as a as a ten ninety nine and you know not making mistakes along along the way. Uh, it's been 
incredible. And a lot of these things that you talked about were things that I wished that I knew a decade ago. Uh, and so See, that's, that's really not, that's nice to hear. Um, so, you know, I talked about before I'm working on this campaign, but once this campaign is over, I'm going back to my business and, um, I've been thinking about doing, you know, some seminars or some stuff like that. Um, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So I appreciate that feedback. Yeah, totally and, do um, that. I'd also appreciate you passing any listener feedback you get about this stuff. I would also appreciate it because it just makes me better at my job. Yeah. So uh, on that point, um, y- you're, you're online and, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're connected. You, you do some posting. I'm extremely online, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people, uh, find you and, and, uh, reach out to you? Sure. Um, probably the easiest place to find me, Right now, um, since I'm not real, since I'm not doing my business right now, the easiest place to find me right now is generally Twitter. So uh, at five zero two e i r e, that's the easiest place to find me. Um, and uh, also, I have extremely good content, so I'd recommend you following me anyway. Y'all, it is ace content. You need to follow Don, whether or not you need tax <laughs> advice. And then that way I can I can loop in my audience, and when I'm ready to start my business again, then I can start you know picking off clients one at a time. So that's really the goal here. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, we, we talked about rape culture too, didn't we? Boy, all we right. sure did. It's been we, a wide ranging conversation. We've covered a lot of ground, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been great catching up, and I can't wait to you know properly catch up when I'm back visiting Louisville over the holidays. Yes. Yes, looking forward to that as well, my friend. Thanks for listening to the Go to Go Hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. All of your contributions are incredibly appreciated. And uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support. So thanks again. And please uh, share this with any of your friends, colleagues, classmates, students, teachers, whatever. Uh, You can also find me online. I'm very online. Uh, the blog is go dig a hole.com. Uh, you can find me on all the social media platforms at go dig a hole.